You're listening to the podcast of Real Life Church. We love, we live, we relate. I spent some time during the past week meeting up with a whole lot of different pastors from around Greater Johannesburg and, and Natal. Um, I've been online with some of them, busy planning some stuff that we're going to be doing later in the year as pastors, just be able to hear what God is doing both in South Africa and specifically the United Kingdom and a little bit in America as I co-labor with translocal international uh, pastors and, and a leadership team in that. I think one of the greatest challenges is, you know, and like we're, we're, we're talking even um, with some friends over the weekend, that sometimes a pastor's job is exceptionally difficult and sometimes it's really easy. Um, I think one of the challenges is you have one opportunity on a Sunday morning to share. Um, and so you prepare and you put your hours in it. Um, you know, most of this week I'm up at four o'clock in the morning preparing and I'm not saying that because I set my alarm to come and I just wake up early. So then I prepare at four o'clock when there's nobody else around and then I swim in the afternoon when everybody else is working, you know, or, or I nip off to go and have a game of squash or something. So I'm not saying that because I devote like 40 hours a day to, see I did low grade maths. I, I, don't, I don't do 40 hours a day to, to preparing but is like, what do you, what, what, what can I share? What is going to be the best thing to be able to, to share on Sunday morning? What is going to be a nice word? What is going to be a comforting word? What is going to be well received? What is going to give me applause? What word will, can I share that when I leave, people go, oh, Stu, I feel so pampered. I feel so loved. I feel so blessed. And then I have a stronger cup of coffee and go, hey, foot sack. You know, I don't think I necessarily want a nice word. I want a God word. I want a powerful word. I want a transforming word. I want a word that's going to change. You know, I can give milk to people for ages. And the sad thing about giving milk to babies, hey, Martin, Marlene up there, is that the longer you give him milk, the longer you tidy up dirty nappies. You know, and as soon as you can get kids onto solids, the sooner you get over dirty nappies and a whole load of sh- stuff. stuff. <laughs> and the reality is most of my sh- stuff that I deal with during the course of the week is from people who are consuming milk and still live in nappies. And for a season, that's okay. We're happy to understand that our kids are going to get out of diapers sooner rather than later. And we don't want to send our kids to school in diapers. I'd be hugely embarrassed if I sent Alexander to varsity in in diapers. Why? He will never date. He will never marry. And he'll never procreate. He will never pass on to another generation if he's living in nappies. And eventually people will avoid him because he's living in nappies. And it's way past his time to grow up and mature. And so this morning, I've got a nice word. <laughs> that was my get out of jail. That was my get out of jail free card. That is, <laughs> that is the asterisk. Asterisk. 
Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> that is when you come to me afterwards and say, Stu, let's have a nice word next week. So, fasten your seatbelts. Let's get out of nappies. Let's have a whole lot of fun and let's move on. <sighs> this morning's message is entitled Unlearning Discipleship and a Religious Detox. You know, um, I think somebody said in the previous this morning about, about being unreligious. You know, I think the, the worst thing people can say to me is that you're religious. It just brings up so many negative connotations. Even if they say it in the well, most well-meaning way, I receive it through my lens of how much religion has hurt me, how much of religion has destroyed me, how much of religion has hurt and destroyed the people around me. And so I'm saying, oh, Lord, give me a religious detox. And, let, and this morning, I'm wanting to say we need to unlearn some of the things. So I'm going to start off to make it legal. Matthew 28, 19. How many of you took your business cards last week? And how many of you actually given about a business card or done something with it? So we've thought about it. Lionel, you gave out half a business card. You like, you don't know where you... You gave out two. Hats oh, off to you. And <laughs> you put my number on the back. <laughs> that's why I'm always, that's why I keep getting numbers from that like dodgy place in Boss Crane. <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> if you had, if you don't have business cards, get business cards from me afterwards and then put your name on the back and go and give it to somebody during the course of the the week. Matthew 28, 19, now that you flick to that part of your iPad. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How many of us know that when we get to follow Jesus, we get to learn about the most amazing things? When we get to follow Jesus, we get to grow in the most amazing things. And so we, we, we come to faith, we go, yes, from now on, it's all about learning, it's all about growing, it's all about maturing, and from now on, it's going to be absolutely amazing. And then we discover that sometime in our journey, it's all about unlearning a whole lot of things that we've learned. Sometimes it's just about unlearning bad habits. Now we can come to faith and we can understand our identity and if you don't understand your identity you, you, you're working on like um, I don't know, two strokes without the stroke or something. I don't know, I'm not a, I'm not a petrol head, so my examples come to naught. But you, you're like wanting to drive a Ferrari and you've got like a sewing machine in the, or a, a lawnmower under the, under the hood. But sometimes we, we, we understand our, our, our identity and we understand this is how we live. But the reality is we just have old habits. I understand that I am powerful, but my old habits. And the thing with habits, habits can be broken. And so we need to start to say, what are the habits? What are the things that I need to break? What are the things that I used to believe that I don't believe anymore? What are the religious detox that I need to go through and unlearn to be able to be all that I am. And discipleship is one of it. We look at the things we thought we knew and we realize that we don't have it right. And I've alluded to that so many times in the, far, in the past. And the more I spend time with growing, maturing people who are flowing in the goodness and the identity and their authority of God, the more I realize that I have so much to learn and I realize I have so much to unlearn. 
the more I navigate the mysteries of God, the more I realize that my nuances, my paradigms, my thinking has to shift. The more I understand God, the more I realize I, I don't understand God. And I get so frustrated because I want to put my God in a Tupperware. I think most of us want to put our God in a Tupperware and contain our God and package our God and put God in a packet and a pocket and then be able to take him with us when we go on a, into a board meeting or into a school and just open the lunchbox where we need something. But the reality is we cannot and we will never be able to put God in a box and we will never be able to understand all of him because even when we get to heaven, We'll spend days and days and months and months and decades and centuries just falling before Him, worshipping Him in new ways. It'll never become stale and will never become obsolete. I'm tempted to say that the longer you've been in church, the more you need to unlearn. The more you've been in church, often the more you need a religious detox, but I'm not going to say that because I'm on camera. So... But the reality is that even those of us who are new to faith have to unlearn so many different things. Because why? Because we've heard all the rumor and the muttering and everything else, all our own experience. And we come into faith and we go, I'm going to put one toe in this water and then judge it. I'm going to put one toe in this water and see if they hurt me like the previous people hurt me. I'm going to put one foot in this water and see if they reject me when they really get to know me. I'm going to be cautious about coming into this family because my experience is the more people get to know me, the more they judge me and they reject me. So we start to become a bit hesitant about diving in to the fullness of what God has. We need to unlearn religion to learn relationship. We need to learn relationships to understand Jesus. And we need to understand both the relationships and discipleship and Jesus to understand what true church looks like. Because most of us don't have an iota of a clue as to what real, real church looks like. And I love real life, but we don't even have the monopoly of what real church looks like. We don't even understand the, the fullness of what real church looks like. But I'm hoping we say we're on a journey of discovery. We're not going to be um, uh, hooked up to the past. We're going to tie off the shackles. We're going to live in the freedom. And God, won't you take us from one degree of glory to another? Beautiful. I want to say that it's impossible to have a... I'm putting this on record this time. I'm saying it is impossible to have a growing and maturing relationship with Jesus outside his local and translocal church. As I said so many times, if it's you and Jesus on your own, you are in a cult. And I'm putting that on record. Too often we think that we understand what words mean. Even in daily conversations, our words are different. If we go through the words that we said in the prayer meeting this morning, somebody can say something and we automatically have different understanding of what it is. I say to the Graham, George. I said to George this morning, yeah, at least I got the G right. So I, it's, a, it's a start, you know. <laughs> and you know how Mark and I spell from the prayer meeting this morning. So, but, or don't spell. <laughs> but I, I, said this, I, I, I was saying to my next best friend this morning, like you, you say the word bra, and a bra has a total different connotation for people like Hugo and Johan. 
You know, a briar has a totally different connotation for an Englishman versus an Afrikaner. You know, accountability means different things to most people. Emotional means different things to most people. Emotional means a totally different thing to everybody than it does to me. You know, church means a different thing to most people. Family is a different thing to most people. And so does the word discipleship. And I've used this word a lot, especially over the past couple of weeks. Let's have a refresher on what discipleship looks like and what discipleship means. The reality is, Jesus says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. We are all called to go and make disciples. But most of us think that this is just a suggestion. This is the side. Now, Jesus, we want the signs, wonders, and miracles. We want the meat. But when Jesus says, do you want anything with it? We go, actually, should I have chips or baked potatoes? Should I have discipleship or not? Should I have veggies or not? No, this is not an optional extra. This is what you and I are called to. It is not a suggestion. We are called to go and make disciples of all nations. So if we are called to go and make disciples, then we need to understand what discipleship is and what discipleship is not. We must understand it because Jesus calls us to go and do it. And if we love him, we will do what he calls us to do. And if we are here this morning, I trust that it is because we love him. I just want to give a shout out to Emil. He was performing in Cape Town last night, got back from performing at three o'clock in the morning had the uber fetch him at four o'clock in the morning so he could back get back here in time for church now i'm not doing that to blow wind in his sails or anything else but for me there's something of a demonstration for me there's something of a discipleship when your colleagues and your crew and your everybody else tangibly see that getting to family events is important and it makes no sense and if Emil, I don't embarrass you, if Emil had said, well, Stu, I'm performing in Cape Town on Thursday, on Friday and Saturday night. I'm not going to be at church on Sunday morning. I would have gone, that's understandable. Wake up at three o'clock with the rest of the crew, get home in time for dinner on Sunday evening and run Shemaneh bath. Um, you know, but the crew and the team would not have had a revelation of the value of church of family and of commitment. It would have just been the same as any other weekend. And I would suggest that there are people now talking about there is somebody who believes in the value of community. There's somebody who believes that getting together requires a sacrifice. And therefore, there's a discipleship opportunity that manifests and takes root there. The more you love Him, the more we do the things that He calls us to do. We are all called to make disciples. We are all called to be disciples. In Ephesians 2, 3, and 4, we hear Paul, and he talks about everyone needs to be built up. Everyone needs to be developed. Everybody needs to understand their gifts. Now, we can't expect people to understand and flow in their gifts unless we teach them and equip them and disciple them in how to use prophecy properly. And not just as a band-aid to cover up things and make things look okay. Everybody gets to grow. We build our lives together. Why? Because in us, in your life and in my life, Jesus is building his house. 
and we can't deprive him of the things he needs to build his house that will bring him glory. So everyone gets to be a disciple and everyone gets to disciple. Everyone gets to give it and everyone gets to get it and to receive it and to give it away. Mark, won't you come up and just mention the illustration that Ryan told us about some stats? So I'm not a mathematician, but I love and trust Ryan. So he shared with us on Friday night. He was just talking about like in the body of Christ, sometimes there's evangelists and you would go out and potentially preach to like a hundred people, a thousand people, and a lot of people would get saved. But a very interesting statistic he mentioned, and in doing that, maybe millions would get saved. But he was saying that if each one of us, every one of us here, and every Christian discipled one other person for a year. So just one other person, we each did that, and that person in turn did the same, and that person in turn did the same, you would actually reach the whole world. It was something like 8 billion, I can't remember the exact number. But every person on the planet would get reached. And if each one of us just, just did that with one other person, it was just really, really fascinating, yeah. Yeah, and, there's, and there's, that's why, you know, discipleship doesn't, it's not a book. It's not a course. It can't happen in six weeks. I think Ryan used an illustration. If, if we led a thousand people to the Lord every year for 35 years, I think he said every day, but we'd get 35 million. But if we did one person each a year, it would be the whole world in 30 years. And that's why relationship and proper discipleship is not just friendship. We all get to do it. In the beginning of the church, in Acts, when the church was forming, the church was really quite wild. Now, I think so many of us go, oh Lord, I wish I was part of the early church. The reality is, I don't wish I was part of the early church. If I'm really honest, I think the early church was one of the most difficult, frustrating, challenging, revolutionary, dangerous places to be. So if you say, oh Lord, I just want the book of Acts church to come. I wish I was part of the early church. Be careful what you, you pray for. The early church had the rich people that came to know Jesus. And I'm quite happy for the rich people to come to know Jesus. But the early church also had the smelly fishermen who came to know Jesus. The people that when you raise your arms and worship, they go, oh Lord, I'm so glad to be outside and I'm down, I'm upwind. You know, the church had all the smelly people that came. The church had the educated people that arrived and all they wanted to do was debate you. And then they had the slaves who just wanted to eat your food and be first at tea and coffee afterwards. You know, so you had all these totally different people. The only thing I know is there were no vegans in the early church. I, I can't guarantee they were the wealthy, they were the poor. They were the clean, they were the smear, they were educated, the non-educated. The only thing I, can, I really do think is there are no vegans in the early church. And I think I'm quite safe in being able to, to say that. So I had everybody except vegans in the early church. And so what if this was your home group? What if this was your discipleship group? Where you walked into your discipleship group on Tuesday nights or Wednesday nights, wherever you meet, and there were people that were not like you. They didn't talk like you, they didn't smell like you, they didn't even smell nice. They arrived empty-handed every week and ate all the food. The early church was complex. Do you think they struggled for unity? 
Now, all go, oh Lord, in the early in, in the early church days time, there was so much unity. It was so good. They just loved Jesus and loved one another and they gave all this stuff away. No, only the rich people were giving this stuff away. The poor people weren't giving all this stuff away. They were just eating all the food, knocking over everything and wanting more. And they didn't even have social grants in those days. Now, and we think we want the early church, but we don't even want Sunday morning church in 2022. We don't even want home group because the people don't look like me, don't eat like me. The coffee is not nice. The food's not nice. They, they, they're not my cup of tea. And so we tap out. The early church worked hard for unity. They strived for unity. If unity just doesn't fall on us, we get frustrated with it. The early church was not a few songs, a quick preach, and then coffee afterwards. It really wasn't. In Acts, they were devoted to prayer and to fellowship. And so often we think, even on my expense forms, I put fellowship whenever I go out for coffee with somebody. And the reality is probably that is more true, because sometimes my coffees are more fellowship than they are discipleship. Because fellowship is kind of like a charismatic bring and share. Discipleship is something far more intentional. Fellowship is fun. Discipleship is difficult. Discipleship takes discipline. Here, but here fellowship meant that they worked things out together. Iron sharpened iron. They did what Jesus did. They did what Jesus called them to do. They were able to get together and say, who are we? What do we do together? How can we fight for unity? What is unity? What do we do with the homeless? What do we do with that educated person who won't keep quiet? Oh goodness, okay. What do we do with that irritating, charismatic, crazy fisherman who brought 3,000 people into faith last weekend and now we've got to do something with them? His problem has now become my problem. Whereas for us, discipleship is often about whether we have an Americana or a skinny white. The early church was revolutionary. The early church was challenging. The early church was difficult. And in kingdom context, they devote themselves to discipling one another and doing life together. We can barely do two hours together once a week. And the amazing thing is they had no pastors. Sometimes pastors are the most intrusive people in discipleship. Because we build towards ourselves, we want everybody to come through us, we want to stand on a, up on a pulpit or a podium, we want to look good, and that's not discipleship. Let's just be able to have the gift of the gab and share a message. This is not discipleship. This is a bit of learning. This is a bit of encouragement. This is a bit of teaching. But I can't disciple in a forum like this. Discipleship has to be getting to know one another, doing life together, debating together. The early church didn't even have Amazon, whereas nowadays we can go one click and we, get, we, we know how to do church together. With Amazon or Takelot, one click and the next day a book arrives on how to do true discipleship. But they lived together. They discussed what it was like to walk with Jesus together. I'd propose that in order to understand discipleship today, we need to spend more time devoted to Jesus and what Jesus' life looked like. Discipleship is being with people. Discipleship happens in and outside of local church. 
But being with people is how and the what and the way that Jesus did it. There's a difference between discipleship and friendship. I can have lots of friends. I can disciple few if I do it properly. There's a difference between discipleship and fellowship. There's a difference between discipleship and just having a second flat white. And so I want to take a, a, an illustration and try and talk about discipleship around that. I want to look at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a very little man, and a very little man was he. He climbed up into the for a savior. He wanted to see. And the reality is we all know the story about Zacchaeus. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus, Jesus entered Jericho, made his way through the town. There he met a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up into the tree and called, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for tea. for tea. He said, Zacchaeus, come down. I must come to your home today. Zacchaeus quickly came down and took Jesus to, to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to the guest of the notorious sinner and scoundrel. They grumbled. <coughs> Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I'll give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, if I've cheated people out of the taxes, I'll give them four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to house today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham, for the son of man who came to seek and save those who were lost. And so there's some interesting points here that I'm wanting to dish out and ask you to, to meditate and to, to chew on them. There's some... There's a number of conversations going here and they don't all tie up really together. And so I'm going to like go through some of them. The first one, there was the crowd. The crowd were mutterers. They were grumblers. Of course they were muttering and, and grumbling. The chief tax collector was not a respectable man in the village. He was taking from the Jewish people and he was giving half to the Roman oppressors. Now, he was the opposite of Robin Hood, no matter even if you stay in Sherwood Forest. He wasn't Robin Hood. No, he, he would have been mentioned in the Zondo report if he, if he had lived today. There would have been a fourth edition of the Zondo report given to Zacchaeus, and that would come out in April. If he walked into real life today, I guarantee that most of us would have grumbled and mumbled that here is this famous sinner, this is this most corrupt person, and he's coming into our church. Imagine if New Life knew that he came to our church. Imagine if Lifehouse knew that those type of people came to real life. You know, our reputation is at stake, folk. We don't want people mentioned in the Zondo Commission to be able to come to real life. They are the corrupt. We are here for the righteous. How many of us would have muttered when they came to real life? Second, he was a little man who climbed into the tree and Jesus picked him. Let's be honest, you and I would have been frustrated. If we were in the crowd and Jesus picked him, over us, you would have mumbled. How do I know that? Because you all go to a prophetic conference and you all wear a bright shirt hoping that whoever's on stage picks you. Serious. You know, how many of us go to a conference and, and um, 
and somebody is on stage. Candace is on stage and she says, God is speaking to me and I'm going to release a prophetic word over six people out of the, out of the 2,000 people. All of you go, you know, well, well, why don't you pick me, pick me, pick me. How many of you have never done that? Two. I, I have. No, I, no I, I have. Because when I go to a conference, I go, Jesus, I want you to speak to me. I'm here. You know, and, and so, I, I, I mutter. I mutter if I go to a conference and, and, and some of my heroes in the faith are there and they start to dish out prophetic words and it goes to all these other people and not to me. Like, God, really? What about my need? My need has been ignored and you are just giving to those. They don't even go to home group. I need a church. And imagine if God speaks to Julius or whoever. Before he speaks to me. What if God blesses someone like that before he... What if God shows up in his home and not in my home? What if God goes to his party and not my party? I mutter. I would get seriously miffed. And here was the rabbi. Here was the holy and righteous one. Hanging out with a sinner, the scoundrel. How dare he? There was accusations going on. They judged Zachariah. They judged Zach. They found him guilty. They found him wanting. They found him not worthy of an invitation by Jesus. There was criticism. They picked up offense, not just at Zacharias. But at Jesus, they got cross with Jesus. Jesus, how can you go to that person's house and not to my house? So first of all, they miffed with the tax collector. And then they miffed with God. Because he chose to do something with the tax collector rather than something with me. If I was in the crowd today, I would probably also be offended with Jesus. Because I gave my life to him and he shows up down the road. We were having this conversation early on this morning in a, in a slightly different context. If you haven't been offended by how Jesus moves, you probably haven't known him too long. If you haven't been offended by the way Jesus does something, you probably haven't been following Jesus too long. Because I guarantee you, the longer you get to know Jesus, the more you want and the more you end up being offended because we are still trying to understand my ways are not his way. Jesus is offensive because Jesus is Jesus. He's not going to do things your way, your will, no matter how much you ask him, if he doesn't want to. On some days, you're going to find Jesus tremendously awesome. And on other days, he's going to horrify you. Because Jesus doesn't step into the how and what and why that you expect of him. Sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. And so people mutter, and we become part of the mutterers. And I would suggest that anyone who leaves a local church muttering is not leaving a local church well. 
I don't believe anyone tells Jesus, uh, sorry, I don't believe Jesus tells anyone to leave a local church without confirming it with the local church. I don't understand how people join a local church and there's unity. God said I should come here. Yes, God says you must come here. I'm wanting to submit to you. I'm wanting to honor you. I'm wanting to be part of you. I want you to speak into my life and I'm just loving this. I'm free for you to speak into my life until the moment I choose otherwise. And then I'll close the door and then it's just Jesus and me. Jesus told me to leave so I don't care what you think. I no longer submit to you. And are you so right that you get it right? Or is it just a moment of being able to say to one another, this is how I'm feeling, what do you think? There is a chance that I'm off track. In our work, in our families, in what we do, Stu, I'm submitted to the leadership. And again, it's not about me. Go back to your home group. Go to your home group and your life group and your discipleship group and say, guys, I'm wanting to submit this because I'm needing to make a decision. And the greater the decision, the surely the stronger the accountability and responsibility should be. And so we need to be able to do kingdom better. So in the story, there are mutterers because Jesus has chosen to spend some time with sinners. What will happen if Jesus manifests in a gay or lesbian bar? The church will be upset. I hope they get saved. But discipleship needs to change. We need to start to rethink how we do discipleship. It's not about Jesus turning up on a Sunday morning. If Jesus arrives in a place that we are unhappy with, we'll freak out. I would suggest that there's possibly... If there is a gay pride going, more people, church goes, will stand and picket outside than pray for Jesus to walk through that door. Because you're worried about the reputation of God rather than the salvation of those on the other side of that door. And so discipleship needs to change and discipleship needs to look different. As mutterers, we carry on having conversations about how and why and who Jesus should do things with. Are the crowd in this situation discipling people? I say not. They're too busy having conversations and muttering with one another. I think the church needs to repent. Father, I repent this morning. On behalf of me and the churches that I've led across the world, I repent for where I have inhibited you from breaking into disciple people because I've had my own agenda, I've had my own paradigms, I've had my own way of thinking that I've wanted you to meet people in my context and my way. Friends, it's not the time for us to point to everyone else. It's time for us to have the conversations, conversations with those who are different to us. Growth does not happen without discipleship conversations. To have really good growth, we need to have discipleship conversations. What's Jesus doing in your life? What are you overcoming at the moment? What are you celebrating at the moment? How are your finances at the moment? How is your work situation at the moment? 
I get to understand what happens in Martin's work because Martin spends time with me. I get to be able to say to him what's happening with that person in that situation, that team person. I can pray into a change of staff in Martin's work and his realm of influence because we are choosing to get to know one another and get to know one another behind the scenes. Thirdly, there are those who in the story are not talking at all. Those on the outside looking in. I think the church has been socially distancing themselves long before COVID ever happened. We must stop breaking, blaming COVID because we don't get, for not getting together often enough. The church has been socially distancing from their responsibility and mandate of making disciples of all nations long before COVID gave the church an excuse not to get together. I'm guilty of this. If conversations become emotional, if conversations become complicated, I segue. I tap out, I offer somebody a coffee, I run to the coffee counter and I segue, go and speak to Alison. Go, go, go speak to, to Mark. Go speak to somebody who will cry with you. You know, and there are certain friends here that I know are just like me. Like, I would never send somebody in Candace's direction. I love, it too, I love it too much. But I am wanting to say that I'm committed to changing. And Candace is committed to changing. And we, we, we have more honest conversations than we ever had before and with other people because we realize that this is our calling and it's not an excuse. But too often in my past, I segue and I'd rather keep quiet than confront. I'd rather hide than disciple. And there are people who don't matter and people who don't say anything, but their silence speaks volumes. And this is not the way that Jesus had it. I'm going to start to land and I'll carry on a bit later. But Zacchaeus, another conversation that's, that's going on in this, in this story. I want to meet Zach one day. Is Tracy here or is she up at the top? I think Tracy would love to meet Zacchaeus one day. You know, I'm glad that Jesus brought him in because now I know he's in heaven. So I get, to, I get to meet him and have a cup of tea with him one day. And we don't even have to climb trees in heaven. I'd love to be able to spend time with the solo rebel. The scoundrel in the village. The sinner desperate, to climb a, desperate enough to climb a tree. I think some of us need to be willing to climb trees to have an encounter with Jesus rather than ask Jesus to rock up at motherland for a skinny white or something. Some of us need to, you know, I want to look Zacchaeus in the eye and go, hey, hey dude, I want to hang out with you. You were a rascal. You were a rebel. And you hunted Jesus out. And out of all the people in your village, he chose to come to your house for tea. What did that really feel like? I know a couple of people who've named their children, I don't know, but their children are called Zach. Um, and I don't know whether they're Zacchaeus or Zachariah. You know, I kind of think that they are probably called Zachariah than Zacchaeus. You know, the, 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 the call out one and something really nice. I don't know how many people name their children Zach because Zacharias, you were the sinner scoundrel, you know. <laughs> the people are muttering, judging, criticizing, and then Zach has an encounter with Jesus. And he has this encounter with Jesus. And then he does what I think most believers do after an encounter with Jesus. 
we do the exact same thing. I want to get it right. I want to look better. I'm going to give stuff away. I'm going to look good on the outside. Not necessarily change on the inside. Why? Because I want to fit in now. So I'm going to tell everybody how good I had encountered Jesus and I am now a changed man. I'm giving to the poor. I'm going to tell you how much money I'm giving to the poor so that you all know about it. I want you all talk about how much I'm giving away, how good I am, how great I look. Jesus kicks down the door to identity and belonging. And Zacchaeus runs through that same door into works and performance. Zacchaeus would fit into the church today. He would look good. He'd arrive here. He'd give money to the outreach program. He would look the part. We would celebrate Zacchaeus walking in the door if he gave money to the outreach program. Yeah, he would save us on some taxes as well. We want to hear the great stories. We want to hear the destination. We want to hear the conclusion. This man was a scoundrel. And look how much money he is giving. Look how good he looks. Because you want to fast forward to the conclusions, as, as I said last week and the week before. But the reality is in the discipleship process between coming down from the tree and fulfilling all that he's supposed to be, regardless of what he looks like on the outside, there is a messy journey. There's a messy journey with going from diapers to jeans or from milk to solids or everyone to look at it. Zacchaeus was trying to fit in in the only way he knew how. Now, Zacchaeus wasn't an idiot. He was a clever man. He was a chief tax collector. He knew that if I wanted to look, if I wanted to be embraced by this community, I know what I need to look like. I know the part I need to play. And he played it well. He announces to everybody, I've changed on the outside. How many people in churches spend their whole lives wanting to look good? wanting to be received and belonging into a community because of their appearance and how things look. But friends, that's not discipleship. It's not the conversation that Jesus wants to have with Zacchaeus and it's not the conversation he wants us to have with one another. It's an encounter with Jesus that changes on the, outside, on the inside. And that is discipleship. It's kingdom identity. That is what we're looking for. It's not what I'm looking for in the people I disciple, and it's not what I look for in the people who disciple me. I want real life. I want my real king, and I want his kingdom. I can never be good enough for everyone. I can try hard, and I can keep up the pretense for a while. People get frustrated when I let them down, when I don't remember the birthday, their birthdays. People get frustrated when they perceive my messages or they don't get an invitation to something that they, they thought they get an invitation for. I can keep up the appearance for only so long, but at some stage the facade will crack and what's inside will come out. My frustration is that for a long time the church, by and large, has been focused on the external. What people look like, how people behave, rather than belonging. 
and belonging first to his kingdom. Friends, if you're strong-willed, you can make good choices. And if you're really strong-willed, you can keep up the facade for a long time and maintain those good choices. But only for a while. There's got to be a better way of doing discipleship. Walking through the muttering, the murmuring, the facade, having to look good, having to have all of our stuff together, there's something better. There's something more real. There's a reason why Jesus is called the way, the truth and the life. Because if we want to have the conversations that land in the arena of good discipleship, we need to change our muttering. We need to change the facade and the pretense. And we need to change our desire to have it our way rather than His way. Friends, we need to move, we need to make changes and we need to remove the pastor. The pastor is not the most helpful person for discipleship. He's the greatest bottleneck to discipleship. We need to learn how to disciple one another so that we can, one year at a time, make a difference disciple that they too can go and make disciples. Thank you for listening. 